Breaking news. I'm here with Jake Anderson for a long-awaited update on long COVID. Good to see you again, Jake. Yeah, good to see you. Good to chat with you. It's been almost an entire year since we last reviewed this, which is hard to believe. If we were expecting very definitive things on long COVID and very specific management plans, we're going to be disappointed. But let's launch into it. Even the terminology is still not quite settled, but it seems like most folks are uh, tending towards using the term long COVID. But we might also see this constellation of symptoms referred to as post-acute COVID syndrome, post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, or just post-COVID. Yeah, or PACs for the cool kids, or if you're in ICD-10 land, it's U09.9. So PAX, the post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, is being used a lot, but unlike the other terms like long COVID, this term seems to include some subacute syndromes like the multisystem inflammatory syndrome, and so I prefer not to use it to describe what these patients are experiencing. Yeah, it feels like that just confuses matters. So we'll stick with long COVID. It's a good descriptor. And actually, thankfully, Even though uh, there's lots of different terms out there, there's been some ground gained to settle on a more stable definition of this clinical entity. The World Health Organization actually published a clinical case definition in October of 2021, and this is how they define it. Post-COVID-19 condition occurs in individuals with a history of probable or confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection usually three months from the onset of COVID-19 with symptoms that last for at least two months and cannot be explained by an alternate diagnosis. They also further define the common symptoms, which include fatigue, shortness of breath, and we'll get to that more. But it's nice that the WHO at least has settled on that specific case definition. So let's review what we know about symptoms at this point. And it's everything from joint pain to memory loss to really uh, all the things you can imagine. Yeah, and because this case definition is so new, a lot of the available data on symptom incidence and prevalence uses a mix of definitions, so it doesn't provide quite as much clarity as we'd like. As we've seen more and more studies published, it seems like most of the data is reaffirming what we've already known. The most common symptoms are fatigue dyspnea, insomnia, brain fog, joint pain, depression, anxiety. And most people don't just experience one of these symptoms. Yeah, no, they sure don't, Jake. There is a cohort series of patients that had persistent symptoms for eight months and found that the median number of symptoms was four. And three quarters of the people in this cohort were still experiencing some fatigue, and over half of them reported breathlessness. We've started to see some systematic reviews and meta-analyses come out for long COVID symptoms. One that was published in Nature back in August of 2021 found that 80% of people with COVID-19 continued to not be back at their baseline at least two weeks after illness. And they identified 55 long-term effects when they looked at 15 different studies that met their inclusion criteria. This is probably the best available evidence we have about symptom prevalence. Fatigue was the most common at 58%, followed by headache at 44%, attention disorder at 27%, hair loss at 25%, and dyspnea at 24% to round out the top five. And there's a fantastic infographic in this article that shows the different symptoms and their prevalence. So we'll include a link to that so you can go check it out. The authors of this systematic review and meta-analysis point out that 
because fatigue is so common, there seems to be some similarities between a long COVID and chronic fatigue syndrome, which is also known as myalgic encephalitis. Pain has also been more specifically looked at lately, and one meta-analysis found that 10% of people with acute COVID-19 will experience long COVID musculoskeletal concerns at some point in the year after the infection. This meta-analysis actually included 14,000 patients that were hospitalized, but also 11,000 patients that were not hospitalized with COVID. And symptoms included everything from myalgias to joint pain to chest pain, with a range of prevalence of about 5 to 20% of people reporting these symptoms, depending on what time interval they checked in. Wow. Well, that's so interesting. And also, this meta-analysis noted a time trend of initial decrease in persons reported these symptoms at 30 days followed by an increase in prevalence at 60 days out. That's interesting. There's also growing discussion about the similarities between long COVID and post-intensive care syndrome, which has been a known entity for a while now and seems to occur much more frequently following COVID-19. And if you'd like to learn more about post-intensive care syndrome, we released this as a breaking news in July 2020. The nature meta-analysis we mentioned earlier found psychiatric symptoms to be quite common in long COVID. So here we're going to see depression and anxiety. Those are the most frequent at about 12 to 13% of people, but we're also seeing symptoms of PTSD, paranoia, and OCD. And another study found that adults may have as much as double the risk for a new diagnosis of psychiatric illness following COVID-19. That's huge. Now, Jake, do we have a sense if there are any risk factors for developing long COVID? Risk for developing long COVID does seem to increase with the severity of illness. As that increases, your risk for long COVID increases. And it also seems to increase based on comorbidities and baseline health prior to illness. But you cannot predict the likelihood of long COVID based on these things. We're continuing to see that long COVID affects all ages, all levels of health, and can come even after an asymptomatic illness uh, when people test positive for SARS-CoV-2. On the protective factors front, there's emerging data showing vaccination is protective against long COVID as per Lancet Respiratory Medicine published on January 20th. Looks like there is potentially a 50% reduction in long COVID symptoms in people who have had two vaccinations. A large proportion of people do not get back to their baseline level of health anytime soon after having COVID-19. There are a ton of long-term implications that seem to go beyond just the long COVID symptoms themselves. Yeah, you mentioned the psychiatric illness piece, but you also sent me that MMWR last week that had a summary of a population study showing an increased risk of new diagnosis of diabetes in the year following COVID-19 illness. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on that. I mean, population studies are, you know, not the be-all and end-all, so I hope the signal doesn't bear true, but foo, I sure hope we don't see that happen. All right, let's talk about an approach to the patient in front of you whose symptoms you suspect are due to long COVID. Thankfully, we have growing guidance on this front. There is a guideline that we talked about in our last long COVID update, and this continues to be the best source of direction for management and comprehensive care of someone who has long COVID. And that guideline is the NICE guidelines, titled COVID-19 Rapid Guidelines Managing the Long-Term Effects of COVID-19. The National Institute for Health and Care Excellence originally published this in October of 2020, but they have done a great job of keeping it updated including the most recent update in November 2021. Yeah, and comprehensive is a great term for this guideline, so be sure to check it out in full. 
NICE is known for their evidence-based and patient-centered guidelines, and this one definitely stands up to that. We'll focus a little bit on the pearls that it shares, though. The first pearl is to be complete in your history taking and nail down a specific timeline for the original illness and the current symptoms. These may include using a validative cognitive screening tool for persons reporting memory loss, confusion, or brain fog, or using exercise testing like the sit-to-stand test to gather more information in somebody who has weakness or fatigue. Yeah, and speaking of fatigue, and, and we probably should speak more about fatigue since it's the most common symptom of long COVID, you can use a standardized assessment tool for fatigue to track progress, which I would not have thought of. You can consider using like the Chalder Fatigue Scale or the Fatigue Severity Scale, which is available in a quick Google search online. Those will be helpful scales because we're going to be seeing a lot more tired people than we already do. That is so true. We know that there is a high prevalence of end organ damage for people who have long COVID. So keep an eye out for this on your ongoing evaluations with patients. And be sure to screen for the psychiatric impact, looking for depression and insomnia, particularly in our patients who are reporting fatigue. Yeah, that further evaluation with like labs and imaging really should be guided by the symptoms, of course, and aimed at ruling out other new pathology that you're concerned that's popping up. Pay specific attention to symptoms that are worsening over the time course and those that are particularly severe or debilitating. So you want to let your history and physical guide your approach to managing these patients rather than a one-size-fits-all. So remember that in some people, it's going to be important to rule out thyroid disease, diabetes, or anemia, because those also can present with symptoms that are similar to long COVID. For people with persistent respiratory symptoms, they still generally say to consider imaging at 12 weeks. But if you do pull the trigger on further testing, like getting that chest imaging or pulmonary function testing, Remember to keep in mind that many people don't only have persistent symptoms, they also have persistent changes to these pulmonary function studies and imaging findings. This is kind of wild, Jake. There was a study that found that even three months out from infection, looking at people who had been hospitalized for COVID, they still had residual abnormalities on CT and PFTs. And this was regardless of their symptoms. And that also applies to blood tests. That meta-analysis from Nature actually mentioned this earlier. They found persistent abnormalities in labs like D-dimer, BNP, CRP, just to name a few. What doesn't COVID-19 change? Wow. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about management, Jake. This is obvious, but we need to start with this. Prevention of COVID-19 is the key to preventing long COVID, right? So get vaccinated, please. Yes, prevention is key. But once we know someone is experiencing long COVID, do we know anything about how to speed up recovery time and how to help them resolve their symptoms? Yeah, the most important aspect of management continues to be regular follow-up with a primary care doc. And this can be built in actually as anticipated follow-up after their acute illness. So if you're talking to somebody with acute COVID-19 illness, consider planting the seed to have that regular follow-up even after they're feeling a little bit better. I came across one group's approach, and they actually anticipate the need for follow-up based on age and comorbidities and severity of COVID illness. But remember, you can't necessarily predict the likelihood for long COVID based on these things. And also, practically, it might be very difficult to follow up on everybody in our practices who have COVID. So a streamlined approach does sound very reasonable. In long COVID, as in any other chronic illness, it's helpful to empower our patients And one thing they can do is to self-monitor with symptom journals or home-measured vitals. And we can also give them specific precautions and parameters 
with those vitals and with their symptoms to look out for just things that may be red flags and a hint that they need to see us sooner. We can help our patients set realistic goals and connect them with resources like peer support because there are a lot of online forums here. And we can also connect them with social services for those who may be facing like real socioeconomic impact from their prolonged illness, like housing instability or unemployment. Because if you have a severe case of long COVID, you're not able to work. Yeah, totally. Broadly, they have looked at a couple of things to see if they help speed recovery. First and foremost, big question out there is, does vaccination after COVID-19 illness help or have an effect on persistent symptoms or even quality of life? You know, it doesn't appear to. The Annals of Internal Medicine published a case series in September of last year to try to answer this. And they looked at just over 160 people who had persistent symptoms eight months after an illness, eight months. And in comparing symptoms and quality of life one month after vaccination, they didn't find any difference. Now, obviously, they didn't have an unvaccinated control, so it's hard to draw too many conclusions. At the very least, though, it helps provide reassurance to those leery that vaccination may cause a worsening of their long COVID symptoms or quality of life. So, again, get vaccinated. Let's dive into some specific recommendations for specific symptoms. We'll start with the most common one, fatigue. Okay, this is an important area that we can help patients set realistic goals. And another thing we can do is to consider prescribing phased return to activity. We need to address sleep concerns because if your sleep is the pits, you're not going to have any energy. And we need to ask about depression because fatigue is a very common symptom of depression. We can expect fatigue to slowly resolve over months. And this approach is based to what we've seen with similar post-infectious fatigue syndromes. And how about that loss of taste and smell? Well, people can be miserable when this persists and it can lead to poor intake and weight loss for some people. Do you have any tricks to help with this one, Jake? Yeah, that's such a bothersome symptom. Fortunately, loss of taste and smell goes away in a matter of weeks most of the time. If it doesn't, though, people can try olfactory training or retraining. Have you heard of this yet? I have not. Tell me more. Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, self-guided modules out there, including online. But essentially what you do is you have people pick scents that they can remember well. So like scents in the form of like a spice. For me, it would be cumin. Or like cinnamon or coffee. I feel like I can picture those scents. Mm, yes, those are very strong and very memorable. <laughs> yep. You have them practice sniffing in like short sniffs <laughs> repeatedly, <laughs> trying to imagine the smell. And you can repeat this daily in most cases in hopes of regaining that smell. Their thought is that there are like neural pathways to remember what these smells smell like and to reconnect it. There's not trial data out there. So it's a bit of a reach, but it's pretty harmless. And if you've seen somebody with persistent anosmia, they're pretty desperate. Well, in our last update, we talked about dyspnea. Is there any updates here? Nope. Yeah, unfortunately, a uh, very common symptom and not very many specific changes in management here. You still seek to treat the underlying pulmonary disease if they have it, like asthma. And you can still have patients try breathing exercises, uh, like prolonged exhalation as part of uh, routine breathing exercises. Pulmonary rehab is an option, but really seems to only be helpful with those with really severe initial illness, like those in the ICU or intubated, or those with new oxygen requirements after COVID. And a lot of the other symptoms that we see in long COVID can be 
treated similarly to how we treat them in patients without long COVID. And that's because we really lack a unifying specific long COVID reason for why they have these symptoms. So for example, people who have muscle aches, you can use NSAIDs. You can use cough suppressants for cough and minoxidil for alopecia. And of course, like we encourage with all our patients, we should recommend patients get good sleep, good nutrition, and a paced return to activity with realistic expectations. Yeah, that's it for now, unfortunately. And uh, long COVID is not going away. So we'll continue to be on the lookout for new data, new recommendations to help us all manage these really debilitating symptoms. Yeah, in the meantime, let's all continue to provide regular follow-up and reassurance for our patients experiencing these persistent symptoms. And when we do have more information to share, we'll definitely be back. Thanks for being here, Jake. We really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. 